If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 6 as the lights come up. There they are. Wonderful. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 8. And uh, last week we started a series through Advent where we are reflecting on the coming of Christ. And even we'll look at the, on the final Sunday in December, we'll look at his return where he will come again. And over the next uh, couple weeks, over five weeks, in fact, starting last week, we are looking at five different themes that hopefully will guide us and really prepare us to look upon the birth and even the return of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so today we are looking at the need of a Savior. We saw last week in Genesis 3, the promise uh, in verse 15. But today we're looking at why is there this increasing need? See, if you remember from last week, we learned that after Adam and Eve ate of the tree, sin entered the world and separated them from God. And this also separated all of us from God as well. This is why I shared with you Romans chapter 3, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so as Adam and Eve now go through this life, this new life outside of the garden, outside of perfect relationship with God, things are growing increasingly bad. And I know last week I told you that it was Bad News Sunday and that it was going to get better, and I promise it still will, but not yet, okay? We're still in the bad news. Because see, the sin of Adam did not usher in out of it a return of repentance and reform. It actually ushered in great wickedness, where we see even in the next chapter, chapter four, brothers are killing brothers. We see this with Cain and Abel. And generations upon generations are, are living and they're dying. And there is this emptiness and this weight as you read through Genesis 5. And some are faithful, as we see with Enoch in verse 22 through 24, but many are not. And then we get to Genesis 6, and there is a lust for the attraction of women at the time. And the characters in this text that are pursuing them are physically mighty and they're very strong but they were not strong. They were not mighty in God's eyes. And so this is why the Lord actually said in verse three of Genesis six, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. And so God sees the evil of man and he restrains it. And so where we pick up in the text, there is grief in the Lord and great wickedness in man. And so understand, I want you to, to really grasp this as we look at Genesis 6, that later when the baby uh, comes in the manger, it is actually rooted in the grief in the heart of God. And really, if you don't understand that grief in the heart of God, you will not understand the glory of the story of the baby Jesus in a manger. In fact, notice as we read, what I really want us to, to grasp and take hold of in the text is that we should feel this sense of longing and need for something better than what we're going to see. Even for some of us, there should be this longing and this need for something better than, is, than, is what, bef than what is before us in the physical and so with that, what we're going to seek to learn and apply in our expositional outline 
is that the heart of man is wicked and evil, which has grieved God's own heart and brought forth his righteous judgment. And so if you're taking notes this morning, those are your fill in the blanks. And we're going to read in Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come before you in this time, God, I pray that as we uh, have sought to do throughout this whole year, I pray that we would behold Christ. God, I pray that as we examine a text that really exposes uh, a state of separation, a state of, of great wickedness and, and evil, God, I pray that we would feel that sense of longing and need and that where we would put our trust, where we would put that longing and that and our and our desire for a need to be filled, I pray that we would put all those things in Jesus Christ. That we wouldn't seek to find our our satisfaction or our worth in anything other than Jesus. So God, we come before you. God, I pray that as we seek to unpack the text, may we May we beautifully see the promise of Jesus, the great need we have for Jesus. And so God, in that, even in this text, we thank you that you are ascending and a saving God. And so we ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So one of the things that is valuable for us to take note of and really remember as we seek to examine this text is that man's rebellion never goes unnoticed. In fact, often we fall into the idea that if we make choices or decisions that are rebellious or faulty, it it won't be a problem so long as it doesn't hurt others. But really, that is because we often think we are in charge, that we are in control, that we have a handle on our sin and our decisions and our problems, and even the outcomes and our own successes. But what we need to understand is the Lord sees everything. Even when man doesn't think he's looking, he sees. And so man's rebellion is never unnoticed. It is never isolated to himself. And we saw in verse 5, we see this, that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Now, what does this tell us about God? If I can encourage you, church, in one thing when you read Scripture, it was that you would begin with that question. What does this tell us about God? Because, in fact, we see that God sees and he knows the actions and the hearts and the works of his own creation. And as he is looking upon the earth that he created, And the people that he created, remember, in his own image, their hearts are now wicked and evil. 
And even verse 5 continues to explain that the Lord seeing and knowing man's heart really reveals the true condition, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, we briefly examined this issue in our study of one of the last sermons in the Gospel of John that we did last month, that on our own, nothing good flows out from our hearts. In fact, the Old Testament speaks of our hearts as very depraved and very dark and callous. In fact, in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the prophet says that the heart on its own is sick or wicked or deceitful. And in Ezekiel 36, the prophet describes the heart as being stony and hardened. And all of this is the condition of man's heart on his own. But remember, this is not how you and I were created. This is the state of our hearts apart from Christ due to sin and rebellion against a holy God. And so this is what is often called the doctrine of total depravity, or as others would say, total inability or total corruption, where as a consequence of the fall of man, the consequence of Adam's sin, every person born into the world is morally corrupt. They are enslaved to sin and and they are apart from the grace of God, utterly unable to choose to follow God or choose to turn to Christ in faith for saving. And so in fact, this is why the apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter two, at the beginning when he's talking about the work of God, he begins by explaining the state we're in, in our sin nature. He says, starting in verse one, and you were dead. That word is necros in the Greek, which is much like we would describe a walking dead or zombie. There appears to be life, but there's, real no, there's no real life. That you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And verse three continues, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And also we see in Romans three, verse 11, where Paul says, no one understands, no one seeks for God. And so listen, man's heart isn't filled at this point with love for God. It isn't obedient to him. It is filled with rebellion. And so this is why the text says that man's heart is only evil continually. But see, when we look at this doctrine, many people will often have a misunderstanding and think, well, if that's what you're saying, and it's saying that the heart is wicked and evil, then you're just, you're just lumping us all together, and I am as bad as the school shooter or the murderer. And even some will misunderstand and say, then I have no free will, I have no responsibility if I'm ever to become saved, so I'm just a dead robot in that doctrine. But that's not what this doctrine teaches. This doctrine of total depravity is explaining, as we see in the text, that our depravity, our wickedness and our evil because of sin is totally reaching. See, if we fast forward to the gospel of Mark in chapter 12, verse 30, 
And we examine a conversation that Jesus is having about the law, which no one could follow perfectly. Jesus summarizes for us what is required. And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now in that, that is a reference to the man as a whole. But who is capable of that on their own? None of us. And this is because sin is totally reaching in its effect. It is damning to the man as a whole. It affects all of your heart. It affects all of your soul. It affects all of your mind and all of your strength. And so this is what total depravity teaches, that it affects the man. It is totally reaching. It doesn't mean you're totally as bad as you could be. We all know this. Tomorrow we could go out and choose to be much worse but it means that it is totally reaching. There is no part of us that sin has not stained. And so see, although God created us in his image, and when he created Adam and Eve, it was with a perfect free will and a right relationship with him. Sin has now caused brokenness and separation and disobedience. And that is totally reaching. And so, yes, you can say that you have a free will, and I would agree with you that you have a free will to freely choose all the sin that you've already chosen, because that is the state that you are in. And so you will always choose you over God. Those are the kind of choices that you and I make. That is the point of Romans. That's the clarity of Romans 1, of Romans 3, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this is because there is some other love that has claimed the heart of human beings. In fact, it's the love of self. This is what our sin exposes. In fact, remember as we saw in Genesis 3 last week in verse 6, what drew Eve in her own free will was not an aggressive desire to rebel and disobey God. She wasn't going kicking and screaming to the tree, but she desired to elevate herself by making her own choice and putting herself in God's place. In fact, we learn in verse six of Genesis three, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So who describes the tree as good for food? Eve does. But who describes the tree as bad and leading to death? God does. See, in in our pursuit of our own sin, when we sin, and even in the, the state of sin that we are in, when we are apart from Christ, we do not delight to serve God. We do not find joy in God's joy. We do not want to stay inside of God's boundaries, but yet we willingly and purposefully and continually do what is evil in his eyes. And so understand, church, this is not limited to the people in Genesis 6, that all of us at one point or another have chosen to love something other than God, and that is ourselves. This is what we see beginning in the garden. 
that the result where sin comes in is when the fruit is eaten, but there is this progression towards a love of self. And so what that means is today, but before we came to Christ, or if today you are someone in here who does not believe in Christ and he is not your Lord and Savior, then, then we are in rebellion against the God of the universe. And like the people in the text, what that means for those who are without Christ is that you have a heart that is not inclined to the Lord, but to the things of the flesh. And really, it's because the things that always drives a heart apart from Christ, the thing that leads to this endless catalog of evil is love of self, where we insert ourselves into the center of the world, where we want to be controlled. We want to be sovereign over our own lives. We want to set our rules and be about our comforts and our pleasures and our happiness. And so this is the evidence of sinful self-love. That in fact, when you live for yourself, you will step over God's boundaries again and again and again because your heart isn't motivated by love of him. It's dead and sin and motivated completely by self. And so see church, on our own, we do not love God or seek him. In fact, sin has totally reached and corrupted us. When we are apart from Christ, it has totally reached and corrupted our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. And so this is why Paul said to the church in Rome, in Romans 5.12 that I shared with you last week, that death or sin came through one man, through Adam, and that life, salvation, comes through another, which is Jesus. And so understand, this is the state that man is in due to the fall and sin of Adam. And so as we see here, it is affecting all of man, and they are full of sin. As it says, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now notice something important about this. Again, God sees our hearts. That's one of the things that we learn in this verse, verse five. And so let me ask you, what does God see in your heart today? What does God see in your heart today? See, really what we find is that there is no escaping an account for what we think and for what our actions are and for what our desires are because God sees our hearts. And really, God is going to rightly judge and pour out his wrath upon sin. But before that, what we see in this text is that God is grieved. That God is grieved by man's sin and man's rebellion. And in verse 7, there's probably, uh, I'm sorry, verse 6, there is probably uh, no more difficult or disheartening type of uh, verse to read than this when it says, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Now notice the contrast here in verse six in the creation account of Genesis one and two. See, if you remember when God created in Genesis chapter one, it would say that the Lord saw and it was good. But now we learn in Genesis six that the Lord saw and he regretted 
The Lord saw and he regretted making man and it grieved him. And so now this is interesting because verse 6 tells us that the Lord regretted and that he was grieved. And so for us to understand, as we need to ask the question, what does this say about God? Church, we need to understand what this means, or, or more so, what this doesn't mean. See, God regretting, as it says in the text, does not mean that God made a mistake, or that he changed his mind about creation, or even worse, was unaware of how bad they'd get. In fact, this is a view of open theists that they hold, but it is not a biblically consistent idea because there are many other scriptures that declare God's knowledge of the future. And so these scriptures should be understood as God describing himself in ways we can understand. And so God's disappointment and his regret at the wickedness of humanity does not mean he was unaware or even shocked it would occur. See, this is known as anthropopathic language. That's a a term that really expresses uh, human emotion uh, by a deity. Not that the the deity is feeling human emotion, but it it is expressed. Meaning this language in verse 6 describes God with human characteristics so that we can have a glimpse into understanding him. And so see, the closest that we can get to understanding what God felt is how he looked upon the wickedness of mankind with human regret. But see, we look at another text in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel 15, verse 29. We find this similar language coming out of Samuel's own mouth when he's describing God, but it's in the opposite narrative. He says, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Now, this type of realization in the Old Testament prophets is not unique to Samuel. In fact, over and over again in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah, in Isaiah, in Ezekiel, and elsewhere, you will get this emphasis that the Lord does not change his mind. And so the language of the Lord regretting, that that language here in the verse is intended to make clear in a dramatic sense to us how God relates and how God responds to sin. And so really, as we read this, church, the language is not to be played down or dismissed, but the language should actually be played up and emphasize how much God hates sin. And so do you see God's intensity and absolute heart brokenness towards sin? And two, I think this indicates something incredible about God of how his uh, emotions are true and complete, that he is perfect, that his uh, emotions are not fickle like ours. They're not reactionary like ours because the Lord cannot be acted on against his will. But still, Scripture freely uses the language of feeling and emotion in reference to the Lord. But now, some people would look at this passage further and are troubled by what they perceive. Because what they then see is this is an angry, bloodthirsty God who's now for this moment looked upon his people and is going to wipe them out in wrath. 
But really, church, we need to look deeper than that. Because remember, it's not as if all humans at that time woke up one day after living pure and holy lives and walking with the Lord and then decided all of a sudden to start being evil. And then because of that one bad day, God decides, I'm just going to wipe them out. But see, here's what's difficult. If we're honest, if we actually understand the absolute holiness of God, his true character, his divine attributes, and his profound sovereignty, he could have done that. And he would be absolutely justified in it. But see, that's not what the Lord has done here. See, where people are living terribly evil lives for years and decades and centuries, still God patiently and lovingly delayed judgment. And so, yes, we're looking at a few short verses, but understand that God restrains his wrath with relationship in mind. That day after year, day after day, year after year, God withheld the flood even though it was deserved. That God watched his creation scorn him and rebuke him and ignore him. That God waited patiently, lovingly. And so listen, this is not bloodthirsty anger. In fact, his judgment has been hinted at in verse three that we read at the beginning of our time. But in his mercy, he has provided a time for repentance. And so understand, this is God's patience and grace that is being ignored and rejected and disregarded because ultimately the thing that sinners without a savior will always choose is love of self. This is always what they will choose. And so that is where we see the the long suffering and the undeserved grace of God rejected before we come to his righteous and just wrath. And see, in verse seven, we find that in God's grief, he acts righteously, not, not fickle, not reactionary like us, but righteously in his response. Where the Lord says, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Again, this is a difficult verse. God looks at his creation and says, I am sorry that I have made them. Now remember, there is grief in the heart of God because of the sin of his creation. But this does not point us to some failure in God, but actually points us to a failure in us. That it's very clear that man is the problem here in the text. And actually, uh, friends, until we own that we are the problem, we are not ready for the grace of the Lord. Now see, it's also clear that sin is not circumstantial. This is not a one-time thing. It is a sin of the heart. It's original in them. It's original in us. They are corrupted by sin. We are corrupted by sin when we are without the Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I, I would urge us to not tone down the strong language of Genesis 6, verse 6 and 7. Because the language is a clear description of the Lord's right reaction to sin. 
Now, maybe some of you see this text and it's difficult for you to chew on. Maybe you see these words and you read this text and you think, none of this is loving. None of this seems loving. And in fact, pastor, can you just get to the New Testament passages when Jesus comes forward in the little manger, when angels are singing, shepherds are coming, and wise men are traveling? Why aren't we there? This is Christmas. But friends, do not so quickly rush away from difficult texts. We should never rush quickly away from difficult texts. And so this is why I told you at the beginning of our time, if you do not understand the grief in the heart of God, you will never understand the glory of the story of why the baby Jesus is in a manger. And so as we're unpacking this text, we're seeing the weightiness of these verses. Do you feel this sense of longing and need for something better than what's in the text? Then let me tell you, look to the cross. See, you may ask, how can, how can God be love or, or loving and bring forth his judgment and it still be right and it be righteous? And see, the reason that probably seems odd or unnatural is because in our Western culture, we tend to apply our ideas and our definitions of love to the character of God. And let me tell you, church, that is a dangerous eisegesis. Whereas here we desire to preach exegetically, we would do an exegesis, expose literally what is in the text, what is God saying to us? An eisegesis is where you self-impose yourself upon the text of the Bible. And so I need you to understand, we do not define the character of God. God does in his word, on his own, to his people. And so if you want to rightly see God's love, look at the cross of Christ. If you want to see God's righteous wrath, look at the cross of Christ. And that is not inconsistent of God. That is perfectly consistent. Because if there and in the cross, that is where God's wrath, God's righteous judgment is fulfilled. And in that we see the depth of his love and his mercy poured out to those who are his. And so understand, brothers and sisters, we cannot look rightly upon the incredible glory of the story of the baby Jesus in the manger unless we are also willing to face the absolute grief in the heart of God and his righteous wrath poured out. In fact, this is the only way that any sinner can ever come to the understanding of their need for the Savior. That apart from Jesus Christ, they are a sinner under God's righteous wrath. But see, in Jesus Christ, when one trusts and submits to his lordship, then they are free from God's righteous wrath. Because they have then trusted and believed that God has poured out his wrath and his right judgment on the Son upon the cross as payment for their sin. And so without Christ, you will always be a sinner in need of a Savior. But Christ will always be the Savior that paid for sin. And so here is where the work is finished, not in the Christian life, but in the sinner becoming a Christian. 
that they're no longer trusting in themselves. They're no longer focused on self-love. They are trusting in Jesus Christ alone and loving him above all others. Church, this is the beautiful truth of the gospel, the good news that invades bad space. And so here where we have seen man in a state of great wickedness and, and evil apart from God, and he pours out his righteous judgment and wrath, he, he does not wipe out all. He has every right to do so, but he does not wipe out all. In fact, in verse eight, we find one who was spared, and we see why. Verse eight says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now here in verse eight, there is a, a typology that points us forward to the saving work of Jesus. And the term typology is a theological term, which means that the, the character that is referenced in this text is a type of Christ. Now, it doesn't mean that he is uh, perfect the way Christ is. It doesn't mean he's an incarnation of Christ, but it means that we can see the promised work of Christ that will be fulfilled in what God is doing here. And so this is an incredible thing to learn. That if we look at this in the life of Noah, Noah is from the seed of the woman where God promised a savior to come through. He's a new Adam representing the human race, a righteous man, blameless in his generation who walked with God. He's a person who obeyed God without question, seeking to do not his will, but God's will. He was a person through who God made a new start with his world. But still remember, church, why this points us forward. Because Christ is a greater Noah. Christ is greater than Noah. And it's interesting, isn't it, how often that we look upon the characters of the Bible and we call them heroes. We teach our children in Sunday school to emulate these men and women, and yet the Bible never speaks of these people as heroes, but instruments of God's mercy to fulfill his will. That's the intriguing thing to me, and even our Sunday school methods, how we have these desires to teach that, that all of these characters are heroes. But isn't it interesting that God, all throughout history as he uses men and women, there's only one who is unstained from sin. Many find favor, but there is only one servant who is unstained, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so remember, Christ is greater than Noah. In fact, what we often do in, in, in viewing the Old Testament heroes, and one of the things I've often teased uh, kids' ministry directors on, is if you're going to paint Noah's ark on the wall, you better paint Noah drunk and naked over here, if we're going to be honest to the text. So understand, God is not putting all his chips in on Noah, but Christ is a greater Noah. And God is fulfilling his promise. That through Christ, God makes a completely new start with his people. That he gives them clean hearts and the hope of a new creation. And so as we look at the text, and we resolve on this typology of Noah, we should not miss those connecting threads that point us to Jesus. That the grace of God here towards one man, toward Noah, becomes the salvation of humanity. And here we see God's grace 
is the only hope. In fact, verse 8 is the first occurrence of the word grace in the Bible. That where we see Noah found favor, it is true, and that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Because what does grace mean? It is unmerited divine favor in spite of absolute sinfulness and depravity. Grace is unmerited divine favor in spite of positive demerit, positive deserving of judgment. And so in fact, isn't it even interesting that if we understand those books of the Bible, of what the Jewish people understood as different books of God's work, verse seven is the very last phrase of what Moses calls the book of Adam. And the very next sentence in verse eight is the book of Noah. And so see, friends, in these two movements from God uh, working in one man through one covenant and then through another, we have here in verse seven and eight, the only two possible responses of the Lord to sin. And that is either complete judgment or complete salvation. And so here's what we do with the text. Here's what we do. It's that we fix our eyes on the Savior, Jesus Christ, today. That we would come to him. That we wouldn't resolve on trying to be like Noah, but thanking God that he used Noah to bring Jesus. So look upon the cross of Christ and believe. Understand that where there is a great need for a Savior, there is a great Savior for the need. And it's not Adam, it's not Noah, and it's not you. It's Jesus Christ who has satisfied the wrath of God upon the cross. He has made a way for sinners to be set free, that he would draw them and give them life and save them by his mercy. In fact, actually, when Jesus is in the in the garden, and he asks that the Lord would have the cup pass him. He's talking about the cup of God's wrath. And so remember, Christian, as you go to take communion this morning, you don't drink a cup of wrath. You drink a cup of grace. That it's Jesus Christ who has satisfied the wrath of God upon the cross, who has made a way for sinners to be set free. And so this morning, as we come to a close, I would ask you, what are you trusting in? What are you longing for as you feel that need for something greater as we see in the text? What are you trusting in? Do you truthfully get the grief? And in that, does that point you to trust in Christ's advent, Christ's cross, What are you trusting in? Let's pray.